Hello and welcome to Table for Five with no reservations. Take a seat at the table for a fresh, sweet, salty, tart, and pleasantly bitter conversation. Um, hey everybody, I want to thank you for taking a seat at the table. This evening we have a really special storytellers episode. As part of our special education behind the scenes series, we decided to um, have our platform this time be anonymous. And so we welcome you to listen. Seated with me at the table tonight is Tabitha Cabrera. Hello. Kimmy McIsaac. Hi there. Ken Dunn. Hi everyone. And Jamie Ramos. Hello. And I am Rachel Flanagan. I was saying that I think it's so cool that we have this anonymous sort of approach, especially for this series, because we've invited parents and teachers and um, people with different varied perspectives to share sort of the good, the bad, and the ugly and the hard about dealing with the school system or contending, like, you know, just the battle that happens. And I think because it's anonymous, it really led to some truth bombs and some like hard things to share and still have a job or feel like you have the autonomy to do that. Yeah. Jane, what were you looking most forward to when you were thinking about what would come in? Um, Just kind of like what you said, I really liked the idea of people be able to say what they normally want to tell us as parents. Like we have one para and paras especially can't really tell us anything Mm -hmm. at all. And so it's kind of nice just to hear the perspective, whether or not we even agree with it. It's just nice that like, Hey, this is what's going on because like we've talked about in the series, what happens behind those school doors can be quite the mystery to us when we're not as used to that, when it comes to therapy and other things where we're like, we have more of the right to be involved because we're paying for it. And just in general, like, it's nice to hear that these people love working with our kids and yeah. you know, that our kids go somewhere where they are safe and loved and, you know, all that jazz. I definitely feel like, you know, in this series in particular, we've heard about all of the systemic things that sort of come up. And I don't know if it's just like a Flannaville filter that I have where I'm like, oh yeah, I know about that. We fought that down. Or like, oh, this happened to us. We've had a lot of battling to get anything for C. And so it might just be that I can hear these systemic triggers throughout the whole, or like these mm, keywords of these systemic problems, I guess, through so many of our, not only the stories you'll hear soon, but like the episodes in general. We've heard a lot of how people's hands are tied, whether it's the administration or the teacher or whatever. And it's so validating in both the episodes and the stories to hear that really people feel that way. And it isn't just our imagination, but that it's a big effing issue. Like the school system in general is so busted, meaning focus not where we need it, just at all. I don't know. It was so validating. I love the OT who son got diagnosed after she was already a school OT and then sitting through some trainings at prior to her, her son's diagnosis and then after her son's diagnosis and that how, how that changed her view in her like employment, mm-hmm. um, you know, which is, yeah, it's a good perspective to see like someone who works in the field with our kiddos and then had it touch their lives afterwards and how yeah. that changes you, you know. I agree. And just in general, like even not one of these storytellers, but how in our first episode, Caitlin talks a little bit about that. When she had a kid in general, it changed her perspective on teaching the homeschool life balance and how what's really possible for us as parents and what is best for our kids. So Alyssa too, because she had a, was the developmental specialist and then had a child. Yeah. 
I love the anonymous. I love it being unfiltered because I think even with us, we screen our writing a certain way, depending on what we feel comfortable with talking about and what we don't feel comfortable talking about, you know, yes. for every single writer, I think, or blogger or person who shares on the internet, most people at least have a couple subjects that are kind of hit or miss on what they're going to say about it, you know, so it's nice to give people the opportunity to just share openly without it having to be tied to them personally, you know, it's kind of cool way to do it. I love that. Mm -hmm. Well, here they are. Without further ado, here's our stories <laughs> for the episode. I hope, I hope you enjoy listening. From an occupational therapist read by Tabitha. I never once thought I could or would be the mother of a disabled child myself. I'm an occupational therapist. I truly think I lived in a land of naivety that my own life could be touched so deeply by disability. When working with children and families in early intervention, I never imagined I would be on the other side of the paperwork. The parent reading the report of the delays, the one fighting at the state level for continued services, the one writing a lengthy appeal letter to insurance, the one experiencing diagnosis day. From the second I learned what occupational therapy was, I wanted to be a pediatric therapist. For many years, autism to me was a developmental disability one that I first read about in textbooks, then learned hands-on in my internship, and finally learned from daily in my own career. Autism was something I came to know mainly between the hours of 8 to 4, one that allowed me both humility and growth as a therapist. Autism was something that I knew from a distance. Frankly, it was something I was at times afraid of, something I never anticipated or invited into my own personal life. I recognized signs of autism in my son before he was a year old. I remember holding him one night after he finally fell asleep, 40 minutes after I paced the floor to calm his alert nervous system. I sobbed. I pleaded and begged, please don't let this be autism. Please. It was. It is. The first pediatrician that I brought my concerns to actually used my professional knowledge against me, saying, well, you're an OT. You see autism every day. And I think that's clouding your judgment. I really think that in six to eight weeks, your concerns will be gone. I self-referred for services anyway. My concerns never left. I know for a fact that my knowledge as an OT has benefited my son tremendously. It also drove me straight to burnout. When developmental milestones have been ingrained into your brain for years, they don't just disappear when you want them to. Though I will likely always struggle with this to some degree, I thankfully have been able to recently shift to just being mom. Not his OT mom doing therapy with him, just mom. As an OT, I've always had sincere empathy for the families that I work with. I felt it shift and grow with me when I became a mother. I felt it move mountains when I became the mother of an autistic child. I remember sitting through IEP meetings as the school-based therapist and not quite understanding the fever and tenacity of those moms, the ones advocating tirelessly for their child. And now I know I will be on the other side of that table. I will be the one working tirelessly to help others understand my precious unique boy and fighting for what he needs, for what he deserves. We received our full diagnosis within this year. I know everyone approaches this differently and there is no right or wrong way. Some share immediately with the world. That hasn't been our journey. We have been slowly sharing with those close to us and slowly expanding from there. Since I haven't publicly announced my son's autism diagnosis, only about half of my colleagues know. Last year, I, along with my coworkers, completed crisis prevention and de-escalation training. 
Encompassed in this training was a lot of foundational information explaining dysregulation, why children become escalated, and techniques to de-escalate the situation. That was the main focus of the training. A small portion included in the training was how to safely complete a hold on a child if absolutely necessary. We had to practice as well on each other. I understand the need for this information. I understand the need for quality training on how to de-escalate an escalated child. However, I don't think any of my other coworkers had to completely disassociate from this training because they were doing everything they could not to imagine their own disabled child ever being in a crisis situation at school. A pregnant colleague was once chatting with myself and a few others. At some point, her fear of having a child with a disability came up. It just seems like so many kids have autism. To which another colleague responded, What you need to do is spend more time among neurotypical kids because the odds are in your favor. I would like to say that I spoke up, that I was an advocate for my child and others, but I didn't. I sat, paralyzed, until I could leave, and then I sobbed in my car. The odds were apparently not in our favor. The truth is, disability can happen to any family at any time. It does not discriminate. Being the parent of an autistic child has shifted my lens a bit when working with staff as well. Recently, I was texting with a special education teacher that I work with. She didn't know my son's diagnosis. Here is the text that I sent. My son was recently diagnosed with level 1 autism. It's something not all of my coworkers know, though some do. Not something we've openly shared and we are still processing through. It's consumed my mind a lot, frankly. I haven't shared it with the admin or many teachers. I'm doing okay, but certainly grieving too. He's doing quite well now. He's doing quite well right now with supports. Anyway, being in the parent role now of a child with a disability school staff affects me differently. I notice teachers in a very different light. The way they speak about and care about their students, even among the colleagues. You're one of the good ones. Thank you. Shifting back to the professional, I wanted to say this. I work with so many outstanding staff, ones that are trying to mold round pegs into square holes, ones who are passionate and knowledgeable, ones that I would trust with my own baby, hands down. Ones who know our kids are different, not less. I also know that I adamantly had preconceived notions about autism in the past. I've made mistakes, I've learned and grown, and there is so much more growth to be had in general. More education to provide. Recently, a regular education teacher shared that in her college education, she did not learn anything about how to help support neurodiverse learners. Schools are full of neurodiverse learners, so this is truly unfortunate for staff and students alike. I can tell you this much. Autism is so much more to me now. It has changed our family. It has profoundly changed me as a mother, and it has changed me professionally too. I am so grateful for my profession, and mostly I am grateful for my title of mom. From a special education teacher, read by Kim. Hands down, the best part of my job, and frankly, the easiest part of my job, is the kids. I know what they need. I know how to provide it, and for me, that is why I'm here. I think I've had a lot of impactful students, but two of my probably most impactful students were kids with pretty significant challenging behaviors. Their behaviors could be scary. It was concerning for their safety and the safety of others, and it took a lot not only for me as their main provider, but also we had to work really hard as a team of providers and classroom staff to do all that we could to make sure they were successful, and it was incredibly challenging at times. What I found to be the most successful, and really what changed how I functioned in my career, was just being really honest about what was happening. Yes, it was scary, and it was hard that we were not going to be able to change it quickly. That was going to take a lot of work. 
I think having the kind of honest conversation with not only those of us at the school, but also with the parents is really impactful. A recent best part of my job was knowing that I've inspired other people to want to do this kind of work. I had a particular year in a classroom with several students with a very high level of need related to autism. The classroom staff and I worked really closely together. Now, many years later, I found out that paraeducator moved to a different state and is still pursuing work with preschool age children with autism and has found her niche in that from the time working with me. The absolute hands down worst part of my job is just knowing that the school system is not set up for any child who is different. And that truly no matter what we do, no matter how hard we work, we will never be able to make it fully equitable because the system wasn't made for these children. We spend every day trying to fit a square peg into a round hole and fill those gaps as best as we can. I think for myself, I just strive for my work to be enough that they're happy and that they attain a level of success that is meaningful for them and for their families. I think this can also present its own challenges because another difficult part of my job is there are a lot of parents who are not well enough informed about what typical development is. Even at preschool and preschool to kindergarten level, I come into contact with a lot of parents who do not know what development looks like for a child at that age. So telling them that their child is significantly delayed can be a very loud shock. I think if parents of children with special needs were better informed of what typical development and public school standards look like, it could help them to be a better participant in that IEP team, to be a better advocate for their child, and to really fully understand the needs of their child that extend beyond school. There are far too many families who get to the time when their student is 18, and that's really the first time they're truly understanding that their child may not be able to graduate with a diploma. Their child may not be eligible for typical job employment, and to me that's inexcusable. Both on the side of the team working with that family but also that the family didn't know that. I think that starting that conversation as early as possible and empowering families and parents, especially to seek out that information, as difficult as it may be. They need to truly know, why does my child need specialized instruction in these areas? How far behind are they? What is the benchmark we're aiming for? I know seeing those things can be frankly traumatizing, but you have to know in order to be able to support your child in the way they need you to support them. From a para read by Jamie. The best and hardest part of my job. I work one-on-one -on -one with high school students who have visual impairments. Each day brings unique challenges when dealing with the students and teachers. At the moment, we are in a unique situation where our head teacher works virtually and meets with the students via computer. There are lots of times where I feel like I know more of what's going on with my students in regard to their education, but I'm not trusted because the teacher knows best. My days are not restful. Yes, I have one student, but I have to be on all the time. Did they get to their next class without getting lost? Do they have the assignment that the other students do? And is it readable and does it make sense? If their device isn't working properly, does it need to be charged? Do I need to help navigate a website because it's not fully accessible? When the teacher shows a picture or graph, can I describe it well enough that my student doesn't miss out on learning? When there is an announcement, is it an emergency and where is my student? All these things happen each day. I want your child, my student, to have the best education they can. Each time we practice a lockdown, I'm sitting on the floor in front of my student praying that I never have to be on the front line of defense if there is an actual school shooting. Yes, as teachers, we are asked to stand at the door and be the first person a shooter would see. Do you know how terrifying that is? Things that make my job easier and want to continue. I absolutely love when the classroom teacher appreciates my background and will ask me what works for my student. I've worked in the district for longer than some of the teachers, and I have spent five years with the visually impaired program. I do know what works best, and if I don't, I try to figure it out. 
When the teacher takes time to figure out what special interest my student has and then tailors the teaching to what they love. For example, I had one student who loved to eat. The economics teacher would especially give them examples related to food and ask them to do their assignment related to food. My student learned more than I thought when the teacher took the time to get to know their interests. I have another teacher that has many of my students. This teacher is working with a website this year, and because it's not accessible to my students, the teacher feels that is unacceptable. They are going above and beyond to make sure my student is able to fully participate in class. This allows me to support, but not have to do all the work for my student. Many of the teachers have gotten to know my students and will willingly help them find their way if they get lost or just say hi in the hallway. The science teacher that is next to my office will gladly come and talk to my students about what's going on in his classroom. Taking the time off his busy day to make my students feel welcome is priceless. From a teacher who is also the parent of a special needs child, read by Rachel. It was my first year as a lead teacher and it was my first solo home visit. I was shyly welcomed into the home of my soon-to-be student, Dylan. Dylan and his brother were in full battle mode. They were stripped down to their underwear and were rolling across the floor, trapped in a yin-yang of pulled hair, yanked legs, and tumbling boys. Breathlessly, the boys came to the table, eager to show Dylan's new teacher the toys that mom had probably just put away. They pulled them out, both boys throwing the toys and their bodies wildly. The older brother, a new kindergartner, was twice the size of four-year-old Dylan, but only spoke a few words. Most of the noises coming from the boys were excited grunts, squeals, and screams, met with smacks and more tossling. Dylan climbed over the chair his mom was sitting on to reach popsicles from the fridge, and his brother took an errant Dr. Pepper from the top of the counter. Mom was quiet. Mom redirected the boys to move themselves into the living room. Dylan's older brother, who I now learned was Darren, grabbed a popsicle, welding Dylan and dragging him, happily squealing by the hair over to the couch where they leapt back and forth and practiced their Naruto runs. I remember getting into my car and taking one of those breaths that saves the sobs. This was the first time that I was running the show in a preschool classroom and the semi-naked child couldn't speak and independently meet his needs or screamed until he was acknowledged. Outside of the questions I needed to ask, I was not able to glean much from mom but I saw her fatigue. I would have 14 more home visits. I set up my classroom. Each of those 16 children had spent all of their lives in the world of COVID. Consultations and observation appointments and scheduling piled up as speech referrals went out from masked teachers who were trying to teach sounds to children who were wearing masks. A child coughed and we sent them home. I coughed and the classroom had to be shut down. As the state made mandates, parents expressed frustrations. The staff health declined. We were sent home and reprimanded for not being at work. Children were ill and receiving attendance letters threatening their enrollment. We were three years into COVID and beyond feeling sick, we were just so sick of it. And there was Dylan who sat at the top of my classroom power keg and he had a handful of matches. Dylan was the only child who came into the classroom with an IEP ready to go. We would get him services and we didn't need 50 meetings to do it. We could talk to his mom and make things happen. His brother was already a part of an autism program in the district, and their mother had proactively been working towards diagnosis and school support for her younger son as well. Her pre-work was a blessing because special ed and my teaching team were able to get right at planning and supporting him. We had optimism. We had reassurance. A few months into the school year, eight of my children are on IEPs, nine are in diapers, three are waiting on parental consultations for behavioral or mental health services. Dylan was not the only profoundly autistic child in my class. 
Another girl, Molly, offered no conversational words, but would count, name her colors, and tell me, go away, Diddy, in a sing-song voice. With a classroom full of children needing so much support, I had a steady stream of professionals in and out of the room. I started the year without a teacher's aide, and the next aide in her 30s had five children of her own at home. Due to COVID restrictions, she spent more time at home than she did at work. She would finally quit after sticking it out months past the incident, when Molly headbutted the front tooth out of her head while being rocked at rest time. Molly would often be close to sleep and Dylan would get up from his cot and start jumping on piers as though they were obstacles in his trampoline park. If I tried to redirect, he would scream or cry and pull things from the shelves. The sound of crying was a terrifying trigger to Molly who would scream and cry and claw at the source of the sound. Many nap times were a stressful, ill-fated attempt to get our three and four-year-olds to take a break during the day. Before my aide quit, my assistant would lose a rear tooth to a head-butting Molly. The director of the school suggested that the teachers wear helmets. This suggestion was genuinely batted around our top-heavy management until staff shortages forced a wiser mind. Dylan would break my nose that spring with a strong right hook. The classroom was understaffed. The children who lacked an immune system that is encouraged by exposure to other children in the outside world were always sick. My teacher and I cheered when we were able to potty train two of our children. One of us was always changing a diaper or cleaning a mess. We had runners in our class we couldn't hear or understand most of the kids, and we spent the entire school year teaching basic social skills and creating as safe as an environment as we could. My stress level was so high, I would go home, barely greet my own family, and then shut down until it started over the next day. There was no relief. There was no end in sight. There were a couple of workshop days where teachers were required to digitally join meetings from a classroom as administration worked comfortably from home. My TA and I wrapped ourselves in blankets and wept, holding each other through Zoom meetings. Management micromanaged. The specialists had caseloads for four times the number of people the district would relinquish. And the classroom I had designed with tranquility and accessibility in mind had turned into a war zone. I spent more and more hours away from home and at work. I was there most days by 5 a.m. and often was the last to leave. I only thought about work. In the shower, I tried to solve problems of seating at circle time. On the weekends, I planned lessons and did documentation. And for 60 hours per week at school, I begged for help. I spoke with our consultants. I referred. I assessed. I met with coaches, administration, and supervisors. Special ed and I made plans almost every day. I wasn't burning out. I was ashes garnished with a newly crooked nose. The story all started with Dylan. Dylan in pull-ups screaming and swinging a one by four at a classmate who took his train. Dylan, who could be inconsolable for an hour, kicking and screaming and hitting and running, doing parkour over file cabinets. If he felt an injustice had been done, Dylan's eyes would almost turn black and his frustration at his own lack of language would drive him to destruction, self-abuse, and danger in the classroom. He didn't have words to say how he felt or what he wanted, so he showed us any way he knew how. I spent hours every week with him trying to keep himself and his peers safe, while my assistant and any person that I could find could try and manage the chaos of a diapered classroom that wouldn't nap, refused to eat, and was overstimulated and felt like we could never find calm again. If or when I got a break, it was to sit silently in the break room with only the glow of a pop machine and my own shredded nerves for a few minutes before I relieved whichever support staff had stepped in to supply me with that luxury. I felt I was incapable of making a difference. 
things were only getting worse. Negative behaviors get attention and four-year-olds capitalize on that. One child with a match becomes 12 children engulfed in flames of tears, flying magnetiles, and secondary tantrums. But then something happened, milk. Speech and special ed, as well as our teaching team, had been using a simple ASL when we spoke or played with children. And one day, Dylan made the connection. The door to language creaked open. First, it was milk. Then it was more milk. And then it was play and help. He was sitting in circle for longer than two minutes, our IEP goal. Then, he didn't need an adult to sit with. He was sitting at meals. He was making sounds to emulate the songs that we sang. The days that had been a desperate fight to stay with his mom soon became a quick hug and he was off to wash his hands and start the day. Dylan was not the only child in my class with special needs, and most of the year felt like a power keg. There were times I felt so ineffective. I bathed in my imposter syndrome, but I wasn't an imposter, and Dylan and those other children were learning. We were all learning. I had Dylan again last year. By the end of the year, he had a repertoire of signs and could even speak. Every day started with a hug, and every day ended with him blowing a kiss and saying goodbye. Dylan had a meltdown in early spring. I had to hand the book I was reading to another teacher, and he walked with me to our calm area where he was offered books and yoga and visual aids. This was a far cry from only a year before when he would have required me to carry him to the calm space and he would scream and beat me for an hour. When he and I confidently and calmly walked into the classroom with him holding a squishy toy, the new special education teacher said, well, I don't know what to do. That was so scary and intense. I said, that was two years of work and he did great. I walked tall next to Dylan, who my TA and I now refer to as our boy. We had done the work. His family had done the work. Things may not be easy, but I saw him using skills. I saw classmates trying to meet him halfway. It wasn't a day to cry by the pot machine. I left my job in April due to burnout. I have had offers to go elsewhere, but for the moment, I don't see myself in education. I loved my kids to the end of the world, but I have had so much conflict with the system. I don't think it's a match for older, better boundaries need. I saw Dylan this summer. He was playing with a neighbor child, and I watched him apply some of our classroom expectations and his skills in this play. I could not have been prouder. I also got a hug. I missed our boy. I live in a small enough town that I'm blessed to see my students from time to time, and I look forward to seeing him take on the world. I chose to write this so that all the guardians of Molly's and Dylan's and the other 14 magical, playful, creative, funny, knowledge-craving, sparkling children in classes like mine can tell your children with confidence, teachers love you. From the parent of a special needs child, read by Jen. As I laid in bed last night and tried to relax, I began to feel this tremendous amount of anxiety buildup. It's back to school, which means trying to make sure the kids have all their school supplies, making sure our middle son is prepared to start middle school, and setting him up for success because he suffers from anxiety and has already been in tears because he's so nervous. It means getting meds prepared for school, which means ordering and picking up extra bottles and trying to wrap your brain around what to give school and what to keep at home. It's open houses, back to school nights, middle school camp, and meet the teacher nights. It's scheduling and going to eye doctor appointments, picking out new glasses and picking them up when they are in. It's getting haircuts and preparation for picture day. It's making sure they have all their clothes and shoes they need, even after our puppy ate two of our son's new pair of school shoes. It's a hundred emails from two different schools to navigate through. 
to make sure you're on top of things and don't miss anything. It's putting all the important dates on your Google and work calendar to be sure you're organized. It's worrying about upcoming IEP meetings, which I probably have PTSD from last year after navigating seven IEP meetings, having to hire an IEP advocate and special needs attorney. I could write for days about that. The IEP hangover really is a thing, but the fight is worth it to get our kids what they need, deserve, and have a right to. It's making sure you're prepared with the on the semi health breakfast and snacks, quick and easy dinners. And then there's a teacher gift for the first day of school. It's a lot. Can we also talk about how damn expensive it is? Then there are two boys still at home. They have a love and hate relationship like many brothers. They play together, antagonize each other, stand up for each other, and fight day in and day out. You ask them to help out, but you have to ask 20 times and negotiate for anything to get done. The house is in a constant state of, there appears to be a struggle in here. Our son eating food all over the house and leaving dishes everywhere, but yet couldn't take the time to put it in the dishwasher. There is trash that needs to be picked up. Apparently, it's too much work to put in the garbage. Clothes laying around from the kids changing 20 times a day, but he couldn't find the time to put it in the hamper. We have a cleaning lady that comes every other week, and the boys are like, why do we have to pick up if there's a cleaning lady? Um, her job isn't to pick up because you guys chose to be lazy. Let's be honest. We as parents pick most of it up. And then there is our puppy, eight-month-old golden doodle, Max. Not sure who makes more messes. Max or our artistic son. He's constantly chewing things or destroying them. He's needy and wants attention. To eat, drink, be let out, or played with. Get a puppy, they said. It will be fun, they said. Ugh. Then there is the never-ending to-do list of things at home. It feels daunting, and there are never enough hours in the day. Then there is your marriage. My husband worried about saying a trigger word that might set me off, which she shouldn't have to do, but teetering on the edge right now. We seem to forever get time, just the two of us, to enjoy each other. We are more worried about everything and everyone else, yet we do see a marriage counselor to help the stress of autism in our marriage and prevent us from getting to the point we just call it quits. We have seen a marriage counselor on and off for 13 years. It really does help. Then there is our artistic son, who's always senses it's back to school time. He starts not to sleep as much. Anxiety builds. We need to get back into routine for school and off electronics. They have been on all summer. Taking it away last night set him into a full-blown meltdown, which included yelling to the point his face was red and foaming at the mouth. He threw his glasses and a TV remote, which broke. He called me names and hit me multiple times. Once he calmed down, he was sorry and felt bad. I felt bad. I was angry. I know it's hard to control himself in times like this. It's like an out-of-body experience for him, but it doesn't make it any easier. I haven't even mentioned my job. I am a team of one with two people short for two years. I love my job, but it's not easy. I am blessed to be able to work from home some days, but it's not easy trying to navigate with constant chaos at home and trying to concentrate with all that's going on. I know I need to take care of myself. I preach to everyone else the importance of self-care. I want to exercise because it helps my stress levels. But when? It all got to me last night and I had a panic attack. It's what happens for us type A perfectionist personalities. We go, 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 and then break the cycle starts all over again. Life is hard. Being a parent and wife is hard, but coupled with special needs is even harder. So parents, caregivers, I see you, I hear you, you are not alone. One tired, exhausted, and overwhelmed old mom. 
Well, everybody, thank you so much for listening. And thank you to everybody who submitted a story. Next, we have no reservations. And uh, we are excited to continue this unfiltered view on special education system. Here's our behind the scenes look. Okay, good night, everybody. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for joining us at the table for this episode of the Table for Five No Reservations podcast. Big thank you to all of our supporters. If you would like to become a supporter, please check out the description of this episode where you will also find episode information, how to sign up for our newsletter, and find links to us individually. Join us next Monday for more. And while you wait, check out our content on Facebook and Instagram. If you are enjoying the podcast, please subscribe and rate and review us wherever you listen. To contact us, you can email us at Table for Five Podcast at gmail.com. We'll see you next week. Can't wait to sit with you again.